Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. I apologize that today I might not be looking at this side of the room as much. I, I woke up a few days ago with a really stiff uh, and painful neck and shoulder. Um, and, and thanks to the progress of heat packs and medicine and all that, I can turn this way now, but I can't quite turn this way without a lot of pain. Um, so it's not that I don't love you all, but uh, I might be turning, I might be just looking forward for a while today. Um, it's really good to see some of you um, that we haven't seen in a while. It's really good to see both Rosie and Hannah and Nirai, um, and I uh, can't wait to catch up more. We do have cake today, the first Sabbath of the month, so we have cake for all the October birthdays. Um, and whether or not the birthday people are here, we're eating cake, so <laughs> we look forward to sharing nibbles together. Grateful for Kim, who has prepared the nibbles for today. We're doing a series on God's mission, and we're looking at the Bible as not just um, a collection of stories, not just um, a collection of doctrines, but as a story, an overarching story of God's mission for humanity. Um, so we've kind of gone through uh, major, I guess, moments um, in the Old Testament. And um, last time I preached, I preached part one of God's mission through nations. And I talked about how God had chosen um, Abraham, had called Abraham out of uh, a huge metropolis called Ur, and you can see there uh, where the yellow line begins of Abraham's travels. Ur was one of the biggest cities in the world at that time. This is around, you know, the year 2000 BC. And God said, Abraham, I know you have no children. He was an older man, uh, old man actually by that point. And God said, I know you don't have any children, but I promise that I'm going to give you children. In fact, you're going to have descendants as, you know, numberless as the stars. And they're going to inhabit the land that I'm going to show you. And God promised Abraham that through you and your descendants, I will bless all nations. And so we looked last time at how, uh, as Abraham traveled from Ur to the land of Canaan, um, how he was a blessing to some of the nations, but also how some of his descendants were a blessing to the nations. And those descendants were later called Israel. We also examined last time how sometimes... The Israelites did not fulfill their mission to be a blessing to all nations. But it was through Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, that indeed um, he, all nations, all of humanity was offered um, the opportunity to have life and a relationship with God. As promised today, I want to talk about the other nations. I want to talk about the nations that were surrounding Israel at the time. And then next week, I'm going to be doing part three, because as I started writing the sermon, I had about, I got to page 12 and I was like, I should probably break this into two. <laughs> um, so I will be doing part three next time because there's so much history. There's so many interesting things about the other nations. Now, James, let me see if I can do uh, highlight mode. Um, and I'll have to turn my whole body because <laughs> I can't turn my head. Um, Okay. Sorry, do it in front of me. Put the yes. Oh, it'll still show up on there, will it? Okay. Oh, this way. Okay. All right. Here we go. Excellent. All right. So we Canaan. This is the land here uh, where Israel ended up. Um, over here, you can see Ur, and then you see Babylon. And later, we're going to talk about. Next week, I'm going to talk. Hello. The microphone just cut off. 
anything else, um, all the other implications, um, that you would please bring the power or whatever is wrong back so that we can continue uh, this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So while the Old Testament focuses on the story of Israel, we see a picture of God who actually reveals himself to all nations. And this is actually a very important factor to consider. Because um, when we look at Christianity, sometimes we think that Christianity is an actu- is, a, is a Western uh, construct that is then a part of colonization. And while it's true that a lot of Christian countries colonized and were, and were part of the imperialist um, expansion around the world, I want to propose today that God's interaction with people and nations have been um, more diverse than we realize, that God has revealed himself to different people groups and different nations throughout history, and that we actually have something to learn about God from every culture and nation, um, and that ultimately the picture of God that we have as humanity is far broader um, and far more, uh, I guess, global than we might have realized. Is there anything I can do? No? Just keep going. Okay. All right. I'll just keep going. So when we look at the story of Abraham, for example, we, you know, we often trace Abraham and his descendants and what happened. But I want to introduce you to a man named Melchizedek. So Abraham, also known as Abram, has just rescued the city-states of Sodom and Gomorrah from uh, a major political um, attack that had happened between five different kings and Abraham is called upon to help and he goes with 300 some men to rescue Sodom and Gomorrah and when he returns we meet someone named Melchizedek Genesis chapter 14 verses 17 to 20 it reads after Abraham returned from defeating Kedolar Mor and the kings allied with him the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh that is the king's valley then Melchizedek king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, this is a very surprising figure and moment in history, you know, as we're reading through the book of Genesis and, ex- and um, you know, the Bible narrative. Because this Melchizedek, it's, it tells us that he's the king of Salem. And if you go back to the map, uh, you'll notice where it says Canaan under Shechem, Bethel, and you've got Salem. So this, this king is a Canaanite. And yet, it says that he's a priest of the Most High God. So we often think that Abraham was called to share about God to the surrounding Canaanite nations. But here we find out that even before Abraham got there, that God had a priest and that God had already revealed himself to the Canaanites who were there. Even though we don't know a whole lot about him and we don't get to hear a lot of the story, we find out that Melchizedek was someone who was recognized by Abram as priest of the Most High God. In fact, Abram gives Melchizedek tithe or one tenth of of um, his his winnings from the from the battle as a recognition that he's priest um, and that's an acknowledgement of how God had brought about this victory. And we see Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine 
in a ritual of blessing and thanksgiving. And so this very surprising twist to the reader of Genesis lets us know that while we expect Abraham to be the spiritual mediator for the other nations, the other nations already had knowledge of God and experience of, with God. And that it was actually the king, a Canaanite king, who was leading Abraham in worship. This is very important for us as we think about what Salem represents. Salem actually means peace. And a thousand years later, a descendant of Abraham named David made Salem the capital of Israel, named it Jerusalem, the city of peace. And so here we are a thousand years before that uh, a royal priest that David is often called um, exists. Melchizedek is already a royal priest. In fact, his name means king of righteousness. So then we have this little glimpse, you know, around 2000 BC, that the land of Canaan already has knowledge of God, experience with God, and even has a priest who's mediating on people's behalf. But something must have happened to this land and to the people, because 500 years later, God displaces them with the Israelites. So what happened? And this is a theme that we're going to see throughout history, where history repeats itself through different nations, where God reveals himself to a people, and when they respond and follow him, they are a blessing to the nations. But then when they turn away from God and they start pursuing the, uh, the idolatry of other surrounding nations, and when they start practicing injustice and cruelty and violence, then at that time, God uh, sends judgment where he allows them to face the consequences of their actions. And he ends the suffering of the victims. For example, the Canaanites, that despite having Melchizedek and Abraham as positive role models, after they have turned away from God and they're practicing idolatry, they get to a point where they're even sacrificing children in their uh, practice of idolatry. And so when God, you know, 500 years after Abraham, takes the Israelites who are slaves down in Egypt and frees them, he, he brings them to this land now, and it is time for the judgment of Canaan. And this is expressed in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 9. It says, Here, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. And he goes on to say, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess, for you are stiff-necked people. So God repeats three times, hey, you are not better than them, okay? It's not because you're better that you are not taking this land. He says, no, it's because their time is up. 
Their wickedness is complete. They're not turning back. The victims of their injustice are crying out for, for vindication. And it's time to end the evil. We're really uncomfortable with the idea of judgment. But I want us to remember that the vulnerable people being treated with utter and complete brutality need justice. And if God doesn't step in at some point, then we would we can no longer say that he is good, right? We often cry out, if there is a good God, why doesn't he end this suffering? But then when he ends the suffering, we're like, hey, God, why did you bring about judgment, <laughs> right? Um, we have to remember that justice and mercy have to be balanced for God to be good. During World War II, when the Nazi regime, regime was murdering millions of people, the Allies had to step in. And yes, there were casualties to that fight, but it was a worthy cause. During the Rwanda genocide in 1994, when during 100 days, over 800,000 people were slaughtered, the international international community did not step in in time. And to this day, the United Nations um, are ashamed that they did not intervene earlier. And because of the Rwanda genocide, they now have set up a human rights watch organization so that their quote is never again not on our watch there are times when there has to be intervention there are times when judgment is the right answer and it is actually the merciful thing to do in the book the skeletons in god's closet by joshua butler the author suggests that god calling the israelites to completely destroy some of the cities of canaan is often misunderstood as God calling on Israel to kill innocent people. But we're reading from our own lens. And he talks about how the battle idioms from, you know, 4,000 years ago um, cannot be translated into the right language today. In his book, The Lost World, the Israelite Conquest, John Walton suggests that the point of Israel's invasion was more about dismantling a community rather than ending their lives. Just as the Allies set out to end Nazi regime, but didn't kill every German, God directed Israelites to break the corrupting power of the Canaanite strongholds. And in the skeletons in God's closet, um, Joshua Butler writes, the cities Israel takes out are military strongholds, not civilian population centers. So when Israel utterly destroys a city like Jericho or Ai, we should picture a military fort being taken over, not a civilian massacre. God is pulling down the Great Wall of China, not demolishing Beijing. Israel is taking out the Pentagon, not New York City. And I think this helps us understand a little bit better, right? When we look at those Old Testament times, and specifically when the Israelites come and conquer Canaan, that what's happening here is not not just, you know, uh, a complete destruction of a people group, but five year, 500 years of God, 500 plus years of God revealing himself to a people, them becoming so wicked that they're sacrificing their own children, and God saying enough is enough, and the Israelites now be coming in to dismantle the strongholds, the forts, the major military strongholds, so that Canaan can now be um, settled by God's people with God's laws on how to treat one another. God provided firm boundaries for the conquest. He told the Israelites that some people groups were not to be harmed at all. Some were given extra time to repent. And some, a lot of the, those city-states were offered peace. Um, Joshua was told when you go into the land, offer peace. And if they want to do peace, fantastic. If they don't want to do peace, then obviously um, they have they have the battle. 
Sadly, when the nation of Israel in time became influenced by the Canaanites and became wicked themselves, and we, we find out in biblical history that the Israelites came to a point where they were sacrificing their children in idolatry. At that point, God has to once again intervene. And this time, God uses other nations to judge Israel. Israel, by this point, had split by civil war. So Israel uh, split into the northern kingdom, which retained the name of Israel, and the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah. The Assyrian uh, Empire came and took the northern kingdom into exile. And then later on, the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. And we read about this in First Chronicles chapter 5, 25 and 26. It reads, But they were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors and prostituted themselves to the gods of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, who took the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribes of Manasseh into exile. And actually, archaeology and history tells us a lot about this king, which I don't have time to go into today. You have also Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, saying that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So what's happening is that here we have these uh, other nations that... And, and there's a lot that I can't get into today that happened before the exile. It wasn't like God's like, all right, time's up, Israel. Okay, go, Nebuchadnezzar, go, you know, Tiglath, go attack. It wasn't like that. When you actually read the, the, the chronicles, it, it turns out that God would send prophet after prophet after prophet saying, hey, don't rebel against the king of Assyria. Pay your taxes. I will protect you. What did the leaders of Israel do? No, we're going to rebel against the king of Assyria and not pay our taxes. Assyrian king gets angry. The following year, messenger uh, is sent again. Hey, people, just listen to God. Turn back to me. Just pay your taxes to Assyria. I'm going to protect you. What do the leaders do? Imprison the prophet. Kill the prophet. Over and over and over and over again for over 50 to almost 100 years. And then finally, finally, the Assyrian king is getting fed up. And, it, and just comes and takes Israel. The Babylonian king gets fed up because the Israelites tried to ally with Egypt against Babylon. And after many years, they're like, forget it. And they come in, you know? So it's not like God just sent the judgment immediately. They had chance after chance after chance. The, the Bible Project has a blog exploring this idea of divine anger because it's, it's an important question. I think we, we wrestle with this part of the Bible. And the writer writes, when humans do great evil, and stop representing God's kingdom in the world, he hands them over to the death and disorder they have unleashed in creation. And that phrase, he hands them over, is one of the most common ways that God expresses his anger in the biblical story. The biblical authors want us to see that God's anger is always a response to human betrayal and evil, and it's expressed through handing humans over to the logical consequences of their decisions. In other words, God's anger is expressed by giving humans what they want, or at least what they've chosen. And if what we've chosen is ruin and death, then that's what we will get. But that's not the end of the story either. Even though the Israelites and the Canaanites did not listen to God, and even though they practiced incredible cruelty and violence, 
God still gives mercy. So before the Israelites go into exile, he sends the prophet Jeremiah, who, poor guy, I would not want his job. He gets ignored, imprisoned, like mistreated by everyone in Israel because he's trying to warn them. But even then, right, even though they're not listening at all, and I would have been like, forget you all, I quit, right? But even then, God comes to Jeremiah, and, and this is what Jeremiah then shares with all the people. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And next week, I'm going to talk more about how God used Medo-Persia to actually bring Israel back to the land. So while nations face the consequences of their choices, God intervenes in mercy again and again and again. And that's what happened to the city of Nineveh and the kingdom of Assyria, which I want to talk about um, for the rest of our time today. Who are the Assyrians? Well, the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, had existed since the 21st century. And they have a long history of power. And, and, you know, over the years, their land and their influence grew. And you see that by the 7th century, they have um, control over this whole area that's in the pale kind of orange there. And the dark, darker orange is where the kind of the center of their empire was. Now, we find out in the book of Jonah that around 750 BC, God sent the prophet Jonah to Nineveh to warn the people that their violence and their evil was leading to judgment. And the Bible story says that the king of Nineveh repented, the whole city-state went into repentance, and God did not send the judgment, and he spared them. And in fact, after this point, um, when we look at history, at Nineveh around this time goes on to become the largest city in the world at that time, with a population of over 100,000 people. But what happens in a decade or so? They return to their evil ways. By their own records, the people of Nineveh were very brutal rulers. The reliefs discovered by archaeology on ancient Assyrian walls depict and show off the various ways that they tortured their enemies. And because we have little ears here, I will not go into the details of the torture, but it's pretty brutal. The Assyrians um, would, would take their enemies and show no mercy at all. The Assyrians attacked Israel in 740 BC and carried that northern kingdom off to Assyria. Other nations were not as lucky. Ancient records portray the leaders bragging about mass executions. This is the Assyrian king Ashur Banipal who said, I entered that city and its inhabitants I slaughtered like lambs. And it was around this time of the Assyrian empire's history that God sends another prophet to them, the prophet Nahum. He was one of the captives from Israel who now lived in the empire of Assyria. Not much is known about the prophet Nahum, and most people don't even know that there is a book called Nahum in the Bible. Have you ever read the book of Nahum in the Bible? It's a very small book, only three chapters. It sits between the book of Micah and the book of Habakkuk. 
It's towards the end of the Old Testament. It was written between 633 and 612 BC. And it starts like this, a prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. He goes on to say, and the book of Nahum is a collection of poems. He goes on to say, woe is the city of blood full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Charging cavalrys, flashing swords, glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses. So you can really see Nahum describing the state of Nineveh. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? God was saying through Nahum to the Assyrians, specifically Nineveh, enough is enough. So he, he gives free will. And we face the consequences. And that's on us. But ultimately, God cannot endure the cries of the suffering victims without intervening. And so God's judgment is bad news for the perpetrators, but it's great news for the victims. And so God had given the, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, Jonah, right? A hundred years later, God had given them Nahum. And who knows who else he had sent that we don't know about. But of course, the, the rulers and the people don't listen. And within a decade of Nahum's prophecy, civil war crumbled Assyria from within. And also the, the, the Medians and the Babylonians allied themselves. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes and conquers Nineveh in 612 BC, ushering in a new Babylonian empire. So was that the end of Assyria? Was that the end of God's mercy for Nineveh? While Assyria is no longer a nation, the ethnic group of Assyrians who still speak Aramaic today, there are an estimated 5 million Assyrians, direct descendants of the empire of Assyria, who live all over the world today. Here's an interesting fact. Most of them are Christians. How did that happen? These are the Ninevites. How did they end up becoming mostly Christian? Well, tradition has it that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Thomas went as a missionary to Nineveh. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the original 12. And we often call him Thomas the Doubter because he's the one that when Jesus appeared to the disciples and um, Thomas wasn't there, and when they all told Thomas, we saw Jesus, he's alive. And Thomas said, until I see his scars and until I put my finger, he says, in his the holes of his where the nails were, I will not believe. And a week later, later, Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, come Thomas, put your, put your finger in the, in the hole where the nails were. Put your finger where the, the spear pierced me. And he says, do you believe now? And Thomas says, yep, <laughs> I do. And he is so on fire now for Jesus that even though we call him Thomas the Doubter, he's actually one of the greatest missionaries because Thomas goes beyond the Roman Empire to go to Nineveh. And in fact, he travels as far as India. And um, today, there are still Christian churches in India that trace their roots back to Thomas and his missionary work in India in the first century. So thanks to Thomas, thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit, the Assyrian nation as a whole 
in the first century was the first nation to become all Christian. And today, modern-day Assyrians are still, like I said, majority Christian. And the reason why they are spread throughout the world instead of staying in Nineveh, in that area, is because when ISIS came in, they killed, they slaughtered um, a lot of the Assyrians, hundreds of them, thousands of them, and they had to flee. And so... um, And I want to just mention briefly that Assyrians should not be confused with Syrians. Assyrians are the descendants of the ancient uh, nation of Assyria, and they speak Aramaic. Syrians are people from the country of Syria who who speak Arabic and are mostly Muslim. So very two different people groups. Ancient Nineveh is now known, known as Mosul. That's the modern name for it. And when it was under ISIS control, um, 45 plus Christian churches were completely destroyed in June 2014. The Assyrians in northern Iraq faced um, exile or they had to pay a huge um, Christian tax or they faced violent torture and death. And so because of that, many of the uh, thousands of Assyrians have now fled. So of the 5 million Assyrians, um, Actually, a majority of them are found outside of Iraq now. A big number in the U.S., a big number in Sweden, um, and there's 61,000 Assyrians living in Australia. And they're mourning the loss of their history. They're mourning the loss of their identity. For example, ISIS in March 2015 destroyed the 3,000-year-old Assyrian city of Nimrod. And ISIS destroyed the tombs of the prophet Jonah, and the prophet Daniel. One precious tomb that was not destroyed by ISIS is located 50 kilometers north of Mosul in a town called Al-Kash. For over 2,000 years, the residents of Al-Kash have preserved this, um, where they believe is the tomb of Nahum. And it was recently restored after many years of structural instability, now that ISIS is no longer in control there. And so last year is when they finally completed the the. I guess, the renovation or or the um, restoration of this tomb that you can now go visit. This is Dr. Joseph Kidder. He was one of my professors at seminary. And he's from Mosul, the biblical city of Nineveh. When he was a little boy, he says he remembers the prophet uh, Jonah's tomb being the center of the city. All roads, all main roads led to that tomb. And as a little boy, he remembers how um, Prophet Jonah was revered by Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike, and how they encouraged people to fast three days, sometime in the lifetime, and repent to God. Sadly, because ISIS destroyed that tomb and destroyed all the Christian churches in Mosul, um, you can no longer visit that area. But when his family were, uh, when he was a little boy, his his family moved from Mosul to Baghdad because of his dad's business. And now he was a young teenager. And one day he and his friends were walking on this, down the streets on a Friday evening. And they passed a church that had a very, very small sign that said, movie about the life of Jesus. And it had to be small because in Iraq you cannot proselytize. You cannot advertise um, you know, your religion. And so there's a limit to how big your advertising can be, etc. But he happened. they happened to see this small sign, and they said, oh, movie, let's go watch it. 
So Dr. Uh, Joseph Kidder and his friend, they went, they went in and they watched this movie about the life of Jesus. And he was so struck by how kind and how loving and how merciful this Jesus was. That at the end of the movie, when the pastor said, if anybody wants Bible studies, you know, sign up. And he signed up. So he started studying the Bible with the pastor. And he loved it. And he wanted to read the Bible for himself. But in Iraq at that time, if you wanted a Bible, it cost $100. And you could only get it if you applied to the government to receive one. And sometimes it would take up to a year for them to grant you the right to purchase the Bible for $100. He was 16 years old at the time. He worked for six months to earn $100, and he registered and paid that money to the government. And after eight months of waiting, he was told that he could pick it up. He was so excited to pick it up. He had been waiting for so long. So he went after school. He picked it up, and he couldn't wait to read it. But he had to wait until everybody was asleep in the house. And Finally, when, when you know his brother was asleep and, and he thought his parents were asleep and everybody was asleep, he got a, a torch from the kitchen and he pulled you know the blanket over the covers and he read the Bible. And you know he had he had never really had his own Bible before, so he clumsily kind of opened the book and the, and, and he put the torch and the first thing he saw there was John eight twelve, where Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And when he read those words, right, shine from his little torch, his heart was filled with so much joy. And he spent every night after everyone went to bed reading his Bible. And within six months, he had read the whole thing. And he fell in love with Jesus. And when he decided to become a baptized Seventh-day Adventist, his father, by this point, had had discovered the fact that he had changed. He was trying to keep the Sabbath and he had given up his scholarship to university and father was furious and he called all the relatives over to the house and 100 people crammed into the house where they shouted at him, spat on him and beat him and threw him out into the streets, bleeding, left for dead. A few hours later, when he came back into consciousness, he looked up at the skies and he said, Lord, if I'm doing all the right things, why are all the wrong things happening to me? But then he heard God say, If you have me, that is all you need. But he said, But but God, I feel like the whole world is against me. And God replied, But I am for you. So he stumbled in the darkness of the streets to one of the Adventist friends that he had met at church. And this family took him in and sheltered him, and fed him, and clothed him. And as he met with the Adventist pastor, you know, the pastor reminded him, hey, just 90 kilometers from here lies the ancient ruins of Babylon, where three young teenagers made a stand for God. Well, four young teenagers made a stand for God. And as the years went by, three of those men who were young men now, were willing to face the fiery furnace than to give up their faith. They stood by God, and God stood by them. To read the rest of Dr. Kidder's story, including um, how those who beat him later on also became Seventh-day Adventists, you can read the book Out of Babylon, 
How God Found Me on the Streets of Baghdad. You can buy it from Avenue's Book Center um, or on Amazon Kindle. And I'm going to try to get a copy um, for the church library and we'll take it to the church retreat and you can have a read. It's an amazing story. And Dr. Kidder is actually a really funny man. Um, I enjoyed taking his class at the seminary. So it's a really easy read. Dr. Kidder is commi committing the, the royalties of this book to planting a church, an Adventist church in Mosul, that ancient city of Nineveh, because um, to rebuild what ISIS destroyed. God continues to draw people from the Middle East to himself, often giving them dreams where Jesus invites them to read the Bible or to find the people of the Bible, the people of the book. Um, a few months ago, a young lady came to this church. I don't know if you had a chance to meet her, but she is a Muslim woman who received a dream from God. Um, and as a result, she is studying the Bible at the moment uh, with the pastor in Southeast Melbourne. And I hope one day she can come back and tell you her story. Next week, I'm going to share more about how God interacted with the Babylonian Empire and how he worked with the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered Babylon, and how God moved the, the king of Medo-Persia to, like I said, return the Israelites back to their land. And it was there, back in Jerusalem, where Abraham had been blessed by Melchizedek, that a descendant of Abraham stood up, right, many years later and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His name was Jesus, and his mission was clear. His mission was that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That was his mission. And that was the light, the light of God that shone not just to the Israelites, but to every nation, to all people in all history. And of course, through Jesus, that light shone the brightest of all. And it was there in Jerusalem, that city of peace, that Jesus died so that you and I can experience that light, experience mercy, discover peace, so that you and I can now be part of a new people, a new kingdom, a new priesthood who will bless all nations. One of the first converts to Christianity, a man, named, a man named Paul, became a powerful missionary for Jesus in the first century. And he traveled all over the Roman Empire. And when he got to Athens, he saw in this great metropolis people from all backgrounds, Jews and Greeks and Romans and foreigners from all over the world exchanged ideas in Athens, much like here in Melbourne. And Paul stood up. In their, in their center, in their square, and he shared this, this crazy, strange new idea that God loves humanity so much that he became one of us and that he died for us so that we could all be one. The Athenians were intrigued by what Paul was saying and they invited him to speak in their Aeropacus, I can't say that word, <laughs> And this is what Paul said, Acts chapter 17, 26 and 27. He, he spoke to this multi-diverse crowd, this intellectual crowd of, of professionals in Athens. He said, from one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far. 
from any one of us. You see, God's mission through the nations, their rise and fall, their history, their politics, all of that, God's mission is for all to discover God, to discover his incredible love and mercy, and to build a lasting relationship with him. So no matter our background, no matter our own personal stories, no matter our backstories and our history, God is not far from any one of us. And he's inviting each one of us into his story so that we can be world changers, so that we can bless those around us with the light of God that shines into every heart. I want to invite you to join me in the month of October only. We're having every Tuesday a Bible study, and the topics are on the screen there. So next, this coming Tuesday, we're going to be looking at the topic of what is the Bible and how can we trust it. And then the following week, we'll be talking about, well, who is Jesus? What's the historical evidence for Jesus? What is the significance of Jesus? And then we'll look at the idea of salvation. And then finally, how we can grow spiritually. How can we get to know this Jesus better? So join me. I'll send you the link um, for those interested. It'll be, it's in the church newsletter. If you're not getting the church newsletter, let me know. And I'll add you to that. Um, and for the month of October, I want to invite you to step into that invitation of God to be a blessing by, to all nations by getting to know God for ourselves, by, by accepting that call to step into that relationship with God. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Journey Father, I want to thank you that you are not a God of Western countries. You're not even a God of Israel only or a God of the Middle East. You're a God of all people and of, of all nations. We don't even know the history of all the, all, the, all the people groups around the world and how you have provided mercy, how you have given them light, and how you are calling everyone into a greater understanding of you. Father, I ask that you would help us to see, to help us to understand, to help us to realize how much you have done in history, in our own personal histories as well, and how much you long for us to be a part of your story. And Father, I pray that as we as we step into that invitation and as we say yes to you and as we say yes to, to studying uh, your word and, and studying what you are also prophesying about the future, that, Father God, we would come to a greater trust in you and a greater clarity of our mission and our purpose here on earth and what you are asking us to do as lights of the world. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue this series and as we continue to wrestle with this in our discussion, that your Holy Spirit would guide us to be a participant of your great work for humanity. I pray in your son's name. Amen.